True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Don't ever let me get out of prison because I will kill again. Lock me up, that's where I belong. On the side of a busy highway, a seasoned detective pulls over and shares lunch with the man he suspects is a serial murderer. After a can of coke and some bride meat, the killer looks into the older man's eyes and utters these words. The detective will learn that the man is not guilty of the crimes he originally suspected, but he is far from innocent. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 56, The Serial Crimes of Bongani Mfeka. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters. A huge thank you goes out to Kaylee Ridge, Catherine Kalnan, Adele Pfeiffer, Jane Greenwood, Hydra, Celeste Bauer, Michelle Byers Duplessis, Antonia Ellison, Melanie Hillier, Haley Beth, Marlies Engelbrecht, Brenda S., Hannah Turner, and Jay Barnes for your support on Patreon as well as Claire McKenzie and Ilka Zenskiralyi for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to help keep the show growing and improving. In previous episodes, I chatted about the giveaway we had going with King Online, and at the end of July, the lucky winners were announced. Third place went to Chantal Thompson, second prize to Karen Ward, and the first prize went to Kershal Forslu. Congratulations to the winners and happy reading. The discount code is still available for use on King Online and you have the added benefits of supporting the show when you use it. So head over to King Online and get 10% of your purchases by using the code TCSA10 at checkout. While you are waiting for new episodes, You would have seen the trailer to my new podcast series, Devil's Dorp, come up in your feed. The series is the official companion podcast to the Showmax original documentary, Devil's Dorp, which is about the Krugersdorp cult killings case that I covered in episode 4. I've left the Spotify link in the show notes, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. As you know by now, I also narrated the book about the case, The Krugersdorp Cult Killings, by Jana Marx, and that is available on Audible, Apple Books, and Google Play Books. Right, now on with today's episode. I chose today's case to cover because I hadn't covered a serial murderer case in a while, and this one was quite interesting because it had echoes of a fictional series that's on television right now. If you're watching Raker on Mnet, you might find some of the scenes I describe quite familiar, and I do think that the makers of the series probably drew from this case, as well as a few other serial cases in KwaZulu-Natal. This case is also quite interesting, because the offender in question breaks many of these so-called rules we expect from serial offenders. In researching this case, I used two of Mickey Pistorius's books, Strangers on the Street and Catch Me a Killer. I also used Pitt Bailefeld's book, Bailefeld, 
the dossier of a serial sleuth. There is unfortunately no published judgment online for this case, and many of the victims' names are unknown. Speaking of names, as I mentioned in a previous episode, I've taken the decision to no longer use the monikers given to certain offenders by the press. These monikers sensationalise their crimes, and all too often the offenders enjoy the names they're given. So I, at least will no longer refer to serial murderers by their monikers. It's bad enough we don't even know the real names of some of his victims. He doesn't get to have a fancy nickname too. Not here at least. With that said, let's get into episode 56, The Serial Crimes of Bongani Mfeka. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Bongani Mfeka was born in 1964 in Kranzkorp in KwaZulu-Natal. Kranzkorp is a small town situated on the edge of the Tukela River Valley, it was founded in 1894 as Hope Town, but following confusion with another town of the same name in the Northern Cape, the name was changed. The name Kranskorp was chosen because of the two cliff faces that rise 1,175 metres above the Tukela Valley near the town. The name is an Afrikaans word meaning cliffhead. The Kranzkorp rock formation has major significance in local Zulu legend. The Zulu name for the rock is Untumjambili. The Zulu people have ancient stories about a forbidden cave and a hill opening that provides protection from cannibals, but then it closes on those who've entered. I can't help but think about how Bongani Mfeka's victims would also find themselves drawn into a place they thought offered protection, but one from which they would never again emerge. Bongani was born in a time in South Africa when apartheid was at the height of its power. People in the country were segregated by race, and many people, like Bongani's parents, who lived in rural areas, had no choice but to stay there rather than move to one of the many townships springing up near the cities. This meant that many children had little access to education, and those that did almost never completed their studies. They were needed to help their families eke out a living, after all. Bongani and his family lived in a traditionally built home in a rural village. By all accounts, His childhood was not out of the ordinary for a child living in that area at that time. But his father is described as having been extremely distant and removed from his children. Again, this is not necessarily abnormal for male figures in homes at that time. Pungani's mother, though, was allegedly excessively adoring towards her son. From what he would later tell psychologists, her attentions took Molly Codling to a whole new level. When Bongani became interested in girls, his mother would sneak teenage girls into the home for her son to have sex with, without his father's knowledge. It's difficult to know whether these early sexual encounters right under his mother's nose shaped Bongani's ideas around sex and the opposite gender, but I cannot think that it could be normal for a teenage boy to have his mother standing watch on the other side of the door, knowing full well that her son is engaging in in sex acts in the next room. It's alleged that Bongani could not do anything without his mother's approval. Her overbearing nature may have played a role in his decision to leave school early 
and go off to work in the mines in Johannesburg. Bongani completed the equivalent of grade 10, and then in 1980 secured a job in Ranfontein. For the next few years, Bongani would live in Ranfontein and then travel back to KwaZulu-Natal at Easter and Christmas to visit his family. Bongani had a lot of women he referred to as his girlfriends. One woman was more permanent than the others, it seemed, and he had a child with this woman as well, but he never married her. It was a different woman, though, that would seemingly set off Bongani's darkest desires. In 1993, Bongani had been living with a woman for a year. You'll notice that I've not referred to the victim by her name, and I think that this is a good opportunity for me to address this point. For some reason, despite this case not being all that old in the grand scheme of things, there is not a record of all the victims' names. Some victims are named, but not all. Another thing that I think is pertinent to mention right now is one of the things that we don't usually see in serial murder cases that we do see with Bongani Mfeka, and that is the fact that he killed people he knew. Many of his victims were women that he knew well. They were either what he termed girlfriends, or women he'd formed a relationship with through other means. We don't see that a whole lot with serial murderers. Usually they'll target victims that they don't know or have little prior contact with. And that's one of the reasons they're often so hard to catch. But not Bongani. In 1993, Bongani said that he and this unnamed woman had decided to travel to Kranskorp together. They packed their belongings into his vehicle and set out on the road trip. But something in Bongani shifted as he saw the skyline of Ranfontein fade into the distance. He pulled the vehicle over, and the woman also got out. He then strangled her to death with her own clothing, and left her body discarded. A woman that he had lived with for a year, on the side of the road. Although this is believed to have been Bongani's first murder, it is of course very difficult to know for sure. For some reason, the woman's death was not linked to Bongani at that time. If this murder, after 13 years of having lived away from his family, essentially as an adult in a different province, seems arbitrarily sudden to you, then you're not alone. When I read Pete Bailefeld's account of this case in his book, there was no mention of any prior criminal record for Bongani. For all intents and purposes, it seemed like his criminality suddenly switched on in 1993 at the age of 29. But that wasn't the case at all. And this underlined for me the importance of having several different resources – because when I read Mickey Pistorius's books on this case, I found that Bongani did indeed have a criminal record, and quite an extensive one. By 1993, Bongani had been charged and found guilty of several counts of assault, drug dealing, housebreaking, vehicle theft, and taxi violence. I am surprised not to see any rape charges on that list but that's not to say he hadn't been guilty of some, and just not been caught. Bongani continued on to Kranskorp on the day he killed his first victim. He spent time with his family, and no one seemed to question the fact that half his car contained someone else's belongings, despite him having no passenger. His first victim's belongings would remain at his parents' house in Kranskorp, the following year, again, on his way to visit his parents in Kranskorp, Bongani picked up a schoolgirl who was hitchhiking in Frieda, which is a town on the route from Johannesburg to KZN. The girl was also headed to KwaZulu-Natal for the holidays. 
he drove with the girl for hundreds of kilometers, before pulling over and getting her out of the car. He raped her and strangled her to death, leaving her body on the side of the road. Although she would be discovered by a passerby, the girl's murder was not immediately linked to Pongani Mfeka. She is sadly nameless in all reports. I think it is at this point that I should discuss another thing that seems to make Bongani Mfeka different from other serial offenders. Most serial murderers will kill in a very specific geographical area. Generally, it will be an area they are familiar with and near where they live or where they work. Geographic profiling is a concept that was pioneered by Kim Rosmo and David Cantor, respectively from Canada and the UK. It works around the principle that serial offenders will commit their crimes within their comfort zones. Rosmo and Cantor actually developed software that law enforcement uses to plot an area in which they believe an offender may either work, live, or have some other very close connection, such as a childhood home, for instance. In his book, A Profiler's Diary, Dr. Gerard Labaskachny mentions using the software to aid serial cases he worked on during his time with the SAPS. The software was, of course, not in use in 1994, but even if it was, it may have been of little use, as Bongani killed in many different places. If we look a little closer, though, he's not as far from the standard pattern as he appears. Bongani was only ever in two places from the time he left his parents' home. He was either in Ranfontine and Surrounds for work, or he was in Kranskorp with his parents. He went to his parents' home every Easter and every Christmas. He lived and worked in Ranfontine for 15 years. That means that he drove the routes between Ranfontine and Kranskorp at least 60 times in that period, if not more. So really, that route between Johannesburg and KZN was his comfort zone. He would have known it intimately well. So it's actually not that strange that we would find his murder scenes scattered all along that route. There's something else that I wondered about here. And it may be a stretch, but hear me out. There seems to have been something about going to Kranskorp that set Bongani off. Almost all his murders on the Johannesburg end were committed on days that he was heading off to his parents' home. The rest of his murders would be committed in Kranskorp. We know that serial murderers often kill in times of stress, when they need a release to be able to cope with whatever is happening in their lives. That level of stress, of course, is different for each offender. Some are triggered by job losses, some by becoming parents for the first time, and others by rejection. I wonder if the stress of going to visit his parents was what set Bongani off. We know he spent most of his life trying to get his father to show him some form of approval, and the other half of his life trying to get out from under his domineering mother, while simultaneously adoring her. Now, I'm no psychologist, as you well know, but it really does seem to me that the knowledge that he had to go and spend time in Kranskorp may have set off his desire to kill. Whatever it was that spurred Bongani Mfeka to kill, in 1995 he escalated enormously. In fact, from the timelines of his crimes in Kranskorp, he appears to have not been working that year, as the murders don't coincide with any holiday periods. With the knowledge that Bongani had worked in mining, 
I looked into whether there were any mass layoffs in the gold mining industry in Ranfontein around that time. And the timeline does indeed coincide with movement in the Harmony Gold brand and mergers and acquisitions as a result, which may very likely have resulted in workers, perhaps including Bongani, being laid off. This is, of course, only an assumption, but it would make sense as to, firstly, why he's in Kranskorp, seemingly permanently in 1995, and it would also provide a further stress point, and perhaps hasten his escalation in killing. He'd worked as a miner for 15 years. He knew nothing else. Simultaneously, South Africa was going through major political changes, which resulted in many more people moving around and looking for work. We know this political shift in South Africa's history to have been one of the triggers for the wave of serial murders we saw in the 90s in this country. By June 1995, Mungani Mfeka had a modus operandi in place. He would approach women, sometimes pretending to work as a salesman or a traffic officer. He would form a bond with these women, the time period of which would differ, but he courted some for weeks and even months before killing them. He often met these women at the taxi rank as they alighted their transportation from wherever they'd come. Many of these women did not know Kranskorp and hadn't lived there. They travelled there to look for work in the surrounding areas. I have no doubt that Bunganim Feka knew this. He must have known that these women had left their families behind somewhere else. In a time without cell phones, no one would have been looking for them right away if they disappeared. He also knew that he could use the lure of work as so many South African serial murderers do, to get them to trust him. Bongani Mfeka was a highly intelligent man. He also spoke English very well, which would likely have impressed the woman he met. He used all of this to his horrifying advantage. Somewhere between the 1st and the 5th of June 1995, Bongani called a woman that he'd been grooming. Her name was Babzile Mlongo, and she travelled to the Kranzkorp area from Stanga to look for work. Bongani had spent the prior few weeks gaining Babzile's trust. She'd even been to visit him at his home. But on the day in question, he told her that he had a job for her. The job, he claimed, was at Yamasdal Farm in Kranzkorp, and the pair set out on foot, through the fields, toward the farm. Once they were within the boundaries of the farm, and Babzile could see the farm buildings in the distance, Bongani struck. As would become his M.O., he forced the woman onto the ground on her knees, so that she would be in a submissive position to him. He then wrapped a length of string around her neck and strangled her to death, before robbing her of 200 rand. By the time Babzile's remains were found, it was impossible to tell whether she'd been raped. Babzile Mklongu is believed to have been Bongani's first murder victim in the Kranzkorp area. Almost six months later, on the 21st of October 1995, Bongani spotted his next victim. Pilile Masuku had just gotten out of a taxi from Kandla when the handsome and charming young man approached her, asking if she'd like some assistance finding work. Naturally, she agreed, and she'd spend at least two days living with Bongani until some time between the 23rd of October and the 3rd of November, when he took her on an outing to the nearby Kubu River. At the river, he strangled Pilile with her own clothing. When her body was found on the 3rd of November, it was not possible to determine whether she'd been raped. 
while Pilile's body still lay next to the Kubu River. Bongani was already hunting again. Although this time he would pick the wrong woman, and she would ultimately become his undoing. Tolakele Kanyile met Mfeka on the 31st of October 1995 at the taxi rank. He promised to help her find employment, and she followed him out into the field, headed out toward Yamasdal Farm. In a spot that was likely very close to where he'd killed his first victim, Bongani turned on Tolokele and started strangling her. The woman struggled violently, and he hit her with a piece of wood. Tolakele collapsed, and Bongani raped her. While he was raping her, though, he placed his hand over Tolakele's mouth to stop her from screaming. The brave young woman bit down on her attacker's hand so hard that she removed a chunk of flesh with her teeth. As Bongani writhed in pain and tried to stop the bleeding, Tolakele fled. She immediately reported the rape and attempted murder to the police. Bongani Mfeka, though injured, did not stop his rampage. In the six days that it would take police to arrest him, he managed to kill another two women in Kranskorp. On the 2nd of November 1995, Bongani met Nono Shezi at the taxi rank. He again used the same employment ruse with the woman, and it worked. By this point, it seems that Bongani was no longer willing to spend time grooming his victims. He took Nono straight to the farm where he'd attacked Tolakele and murdered Babzile and strangled her to death with his belt. Although we cannot say for sure that Bongani had raped all of his murder victims, it is highly likely, I think, considering the survivor's accounts of what he did to her. Also, Considering he had attempted to strangle Tolakele before raping her, also makes me think that he was probably raping these women post-mortem. At some time between the 31st of October and the 6th of November 1995, Bongani picked up Pumzile Pungula at the same taxi rank. He repeated exactly the same modus operandi with Pumzile, and she was strangled to death at Yamasdal Farm. She would be his final victim. When Tolakele Kanile reported the rape and attempted murder she had endured to the police, to their credit, they reacted quickly. Knowing that the woman had bitten her attacker's hand and caused a serious injury, which would no doubt require stitches, the detective in charge contacted all of the local clinics and gave them a description of the injury they needed to look out for. He instructed them to treat the offender as normal if he arrived for treatment, but to contact the police immediately. On the 6th of November, a nurse from a local clinic called police. The man they were looking for, the one with the missing chunk out of his hand, was standing in their waiting room. Within minutes, police descended on the clinic and arrested Bongani Mfeka. I would like to mention that many media articles credit Pete Bailefeld with this clever piece of detective work, but he was not involved in the case at this stage. This was the work of one of the local Kranzkorp detectives, who is unfortunately unnamed. When Kranzkorp detectives attempted to interview Bongani about the rape and attempted murder charges, he refused to talk. He wouldn't just not talk about the crime. He refused to say a single word. So much so that police contacted his parents to find out if he had some sort of disability that stopped him from speaking. Tolakele knew very well that Bongani was not mute. He had, after all, used that silver tongue to lure her, almost to her death. The irony here 
is that if Bongani Mfeka had not behaved so strangely, if he just spoken to detectives about the crime in question, even if he didn't admit guilt, he would very likely have only been found guilty of this attack on Tolakele. For that crime, he probably would have been given about 15 years in jail. He would have been out in seven and a half if he played his cards right in prison. But Bongani refused to talk, and detectives started to wonder why. What did this man have to hide, and did it maybe have anything to do with the bodies that were starting to be found in the very same area that Tolakele was attacked in? Pitt Bailefeldt would eventually become involved in this case, but how it happened is another case of misreporting. Some sources state that Pitt Bailefeldt was called in to interview Bongani because of his renowned interviewing skills, and while that would certainly be the case in other serial crimes, it was not the case here. The truth of how Bailefeldt came to be on this case is revealed by comparing Mickey Pistorius's account to Pitt Bailefeldt's account, and also by understanding what was happening in Gauteng at the time. In 1996, Pitt Bailefeldt and Mickey Pistorius and her team were investigating another series of murders. The Nazarek series started in 1995 and would eventually culminate in a total of 17 murders. The modus operandi was that the killer would lure the victim away from a public space and rape and strangle them. Mickey Pistorius recounts in her book, Catch Me a Killer, how she'd been contacted by Kranzkorp police in 1995, before she started working on the Nazrek case. The KZN police wanted her to look at a few unsolved murders they had and confirm whether she thought they were part of a series. They also sent along the docket for one Bongani Mfeka, who was awaiting trial for one count of rape and attempted strangulation. At the time, Mickey confirmed that the unsolved murders did appear to be the work of the same offender, and she also agreed that Bongani Mfeka could be a strong suspect for those crimes. She instructed the police to keep her updated on the investigation. Then came Nazrek and the number of victims started to climb. One day, Mickey Pistorius recounts Almarie Myberg was looking through past dockets they'd been sent. Almarie noticed that many of the victims in the Nazarek series were from KZN, and many of them had last been seen when they were headed to KZN. Myberg wondered if perhaps Bongani Mfeka was the Nazarek serial killer. Almarie told Mickey, and considering the modus operandi was so similar, and the man had connections in both Johannesburg and KZN, they thought it was worth checking out. This was when Mickey Pistorius called Pete Bailefeld and asked if he would travel to KZN and speak with Bongani. At this point, Bongani was still refusing to cooperate. Kranzkorp police strongly believed that it was a serial murderer, though, and they hoped that DNA evidence would soon prove it. In the interim, Pitt Bailefeld called and asked if he could collect their suspect for questioning. When Pitt met Bongani Mfeka, he said the man presented as neat and polite. Bailefeld was known for not liking people eating in his car, but he made an exception this time as they set out on their journey to Gauteng. He bought a Coke and a half a loaf of bread for Bongani and observed how the man fastidiously picked every single crumb from his clothes and the car around him. Pitt's team members, including Detective Willem Stain, had accompanied him on the trip. 
Near Van Rennen's Pass, Bailefeld pulled into a rest area and the team set up a small bra to cook lunch. Now, if you're not a South African listening to this and you're thinking it's a bit weird to pull over on the side of the road to grill meat, well, yes, I guess it's a little unique. But welcome to South Africa. That said, I have never had a bra on the side of the road with a serial murderer. But of course, they couldn't say for sure that Bongani was one. At least not yet. Bellefeld was known for a very specific technique. He would earn the trust of the person he was interviewing, and then when he felt he had done enough to do so, he would wait for a signal. Nine times out of ten, that signal was that the interviewee would ask him for something. It might be a cigarette, or a blanket, or something to eat. In Bongani Mfeka's case, it was a glass of water. Bongani then told Pitt that he and his team knew him better after just a few hours with him than the officers that had been trying to understand him for months. Personally, I don't think that this is an indictment of poor police work on the Kranskorp cop's side. What it is, is a confirmation that the serial predator is a very different kind of mind, and it takes very specific training to understand them. As Bongani sat on the side of the highway and shared a can of coke and some brahmi with the detectives, he started to talk. First, he told the team about his murders in Gauteng. He admitted to two murders there that I've told you about, but Bailefeld would find a third that he believed was also committed by Bongani. Then he went on to tell them about the Kranskorp murders. He admitted that he had raped and intended to kill Tolakele, and he said that there had been two other women that he'd raped and who'd gotten away. Those women never reported the attacks and are unidentified to this day. When Pitts asked Bongani why he had killed these women, he said that, for the most part, it was because they could identify him. But he'd also had an interesting insight. There was something about these victims that attracted him. They were all slender, and they were wearing dresses. But the dresses were not a sexual turn-on for him in the ordinary sense. Instead, when he saw a slender woman in a dress, he wanted to dominate her completely. And for him, there was no greater domination than taking their lives. As he completed his confession, he uttered the words that I started this podcast with. Pitt says that it was the first time any serial offender has ever asked him to be locked away. Pitt would take Bongani to Johannesburg, where a police officer with no connection to the case took directions from him to point out the sites of his murders there. Then Pitts returned him briefly to KZN, under police guard, to see his mother. This is not the first time I've heard of Bailefeld doing this, and I think it's part of his strategy of gaining trust. I would think it probably also gives him insight into the offender to see his interactions with his family. Bailefeld watched as Bongani's mother came out to greet him. She held her son for a long time, and the cop couldn't help but notice that she was slender and wearing a dress. Bongani stayed outside with his mother for about an hour, and his father did not once come out to see him. As Bongani's trial date neared, he was charged with eight counts of murder, one count of rape for Tola Kele, and also with her attempted murder. Bailefeld got a call that Bongani was asking to speak with him alone. He says that Bongani asked him 
if he would testify, quote, on his side, end quote. Bailefeld was a bit taken aback and explained to the man that he was testifying for the state. Bongani nodded and said he understood. Quote, Just tell them what I told you, that they should never let me go. If you do that, then you will be testifying for me. End quote. Again, a first for Bailefeld. But he did what the man asked. Bongani Mfeka pleaded guilty to all eight counts of murder, the rape and the attempted murder. There was no need for a full-on trial, but Bailefeld testified in aggravation of sentence and told the courts about Bongani's wish to never be released. In the run-up to Bongani's trial, DNA had proven once and for all that he was not the serial offender in Nazrek. That dubious title belonged to Lazarus Mazingane, who Bailefeld would also go on to help successfully convict. Also in this run-up, it would become clear that Bongani Mfeka had developed real affection for Pete Bailefeld. He seemed to see him as a father figure, and even asked the detective if he could clean his office for him, and so it came to be that every second week, Pitt collected Bongani from his cell and brought him to his office to clean it. This is how Mickey Pistorius would eventually meet Bongani Mfeka as well. She arrived at Pitt's offices to set up the ops room for the Nazrek crimes and the Wemapan series, which were running simultaneously. She found that two inmates had been brought in from the holding cells to assist in the setup. She'd been amazed at the one man's attention to detail and insistence at working as hard as he could to get things the way Pitt wanted them. After the inmates left, Mickey asked Pitt who the two men were and learned that one of them was the very man her team had identified as a possible serial murderer in Kranzkorp. She arranged with Pitt to interview Bongani after he was sentenced. While Bongani was still awaiting trial, a riot broke out in his prison housing block. Instead of helping the prisoners escape, or attempting to escape himself, it's alleged that Bongani worked with the prison guards to hold the prisoners back. When he was asked why he did this, he said that he was concerned that dangerous inmates would break into the office block next door and attack Pete Bailefeld. At sentencing, the judge took Bongani's plea into account and sentenced the man to eight life terms. Bongani asked for just two things before being sent to his permanent correctional facility to start serving his sentence. He asked that the court remand him to a correctional centre that was close to Pitt Bailefeld, and he asked that he be given the opportunity to say goodbye to the man. While he was granted the latter, the court did not grant him the former and he was sent to a correctional facility in KZN where he would be closer to his family. Mickey Pistorius's findings, after having interviewed Bongani, was that the man was not a psychopath. She believed that the remorse he displayed was genuine, as was his desire to stay in prison so that he could no longer kill. When speaking with Mickey, he described his crimes as feeling like a dream. He claimed to not remember much about them at all. Mickey ascribes Bongani's crimes to his abnormal relationship with his mother. She believes that each time he killed a woman that physically resembled his mother, he was symbolically escaping from her clutches. As for his bond with Pete Bailefeld, she believes that this was due to his poor attachment to his father. He seemed to do everything he could to please Pitt, 
and this was his way of overcoming his apparent failure to ever please his own father figure. It is important to remember that Miki Pistorius develops her theories around serial murder from the psychodynamic school of thought. The school of thought in psychology is heavily focused on the teachings of Sigmund Freud and relates a lot to how our parental figures seem to impact our psychology. This is in contrast to a psychologist like Gerard Labaskachny, who tends to lean more toward the systems theory of psychology. This school of thought believes that it is a system within which the individual operates, more so than the individual itself, that has influence. I point this out because although Mickey's explanation for Bongani and really any serial murderer's behavior makes complete sense and is psychologically sound, it's not the only way to explain it. A systems theory psychologist may lean more toward the idea that Bongani was not trying to symbolically kill his mother, but perhaps his murders were a way of restoring equilibrium to the system he lived in. There could only be one mother. Therefore, all those that attempted to imitate the mother, even though this was not their intention, must be dealt with. For a much better explanation of systems theory, you should listen to my interview with Gerard Labaskachny. I raise these different viewpoints simply because when we talk about serial offenders, we're very keen to know how they got to be the way they are. And childhood always seems to be the first port of call. So I think it's really important to note that not all theories support the idea that serial murderers are the product of their childhood. It can be, and often is, far more complex than that. When I was going through all of the ways that Bongani Mfeka was different, and all of the comments made about how his remorse is real, and how he's asked to be locked away, I wondered for a moment if it would sound like I was trying to present this man as something other than what he is. And while I hope it doesn't come across that way, really, he is all of these things. Just like when we talk about victims, we don't have to pretend they were angels in life for it to mean that their murders were horrific and unjust. When we talk about murderers, I don't think we have to pretend that they are these one-dimensional beasts. Bongani Mfeka is a complex person, clearly. But the fact that he appears to have genuine remorse for this compulsion that he lived out doesn't mean he's any less guilty of his crimes. He may be remorseful, helpful, polite, neat, intelligent, and all of these things. But he still viciously murdered eight women and raped another three. One side of the equation does not need to eclipse the other, but we do need both sides to see the whole picture. And that brings me to the thing that pains me the most about this case. We know a whole lot about Bongani Mfeka. So much so that we spend time wondering what to include and what to exclude but we know almost nothing about his victims. We don't even know some of their names. And this happens so much with serial cases, and I know I harp on about it every time I cover a series, but it annoys me. So I want to ask anyone that is listening to this, that covers crime in the media, please, if, heaven forbid, you find yourself covering an active serial murder case, or one that has gone to trial, please take the time to find out the victims' names and publish them, so that future generations do not have the same issue. It sounds so unimportant, but it's not. 
it's hugely important. Maybe names are just labels that are slapped on us when we're born. But when you name someone or something, it gives them an identity. And I feel like when you take that person's name away, you strip away their humanity. Again. We name things that we love. We name our pets. And some people even name their cars. That's how important names are to human beings. And not only are these victims being cut down in waves of horrific violence. But now, we can't even say their names. I don't know, call me crazy, but the focus has to switch at some point. It may as well be now. Eight women met a smiling stranger. Eight women trusted that man or learned to trust him over time. And eight women were brutalized, strangled and left to die. Their lives snatched away because one person thought that it was his right. But thanks to a single woman's bravery and strength, he was put where even he knows he belongs. So even if I don't have all the names, I'll end this episode with those that I do have. Babzile Mlongo, Pilile Masuku, Nono Shezi, Umuzila Pungula, and the four unidentified women. Rest in peace. Tolakele Kanyile, thank you for your bravery. Thank you for listening to episode 56, The Serial Crimes of Bongani Mfeka. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the app you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a Spotlight Minisode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon. <laughs>